and welcome to the Radical News Radio Hour with Serene Saade. You're listening to WFNU LP St. Paul Frogtown Community Radio 94.1 FM. Thanks to Manny Mestis for that opening music and just a reminder that you can find the Radical News Radio Hour on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter at C Miriam, that's C M I R I A M. And you can listen to previously aired episodes of this show on Spotify, Google Podcasts, amongst many other podcast sites. You can also reach our show at radicalnewsradiohour at gmail.com with tips, recommendations, and any questions. On today's episode, we'll be discussing the work of MAPAC, the only Hmong American women's political action committee in the country as well as the recently passed bonding bill from the Minnesota State Legislature. We're also going to talk about voting real quick, share a few announcements, and talk about our newest sponsor. Just a reminder, if you've got feedback on a story or a story tip, please email us. Again, that's the Radical News Radio Hour at gmail.com. Today, we'll begin with MAPAC. I had the pleasure of sitting down with three of their leaders, Terry Tao, Sita Lee Shong, and Tao Mi Shong, a few weeks ago. Here's that pre-recorded segment now. One of the things that we've discussed in depth on this show is the ways in which we build power around social and political issues. My PAC is the first nonpartisan Hmong American Women's Political Action Committee. In early October, my PAC announced the endorsement of 19 candidates for the Minnesota State Legislature. MIPAC, which was founded in 2016, seeks to do more than just endorse candidates, however. Its aim is to center the experiences and lives of Hmong women in policymaking and politics. I sat down with three of their leaders two weeks ago to discuss the work of MIPAC. We'll start with Tao Mei Shong, who is the Director of Intergovernmental Relations with the City of St. Paul. MIPAC uh, stands for My is the Hmong um, spelling of the word my, which is a term of endearment in Hmong. So almost every young woman, if they don't know your name, they'll just uh, say, oh, me, my, you know? And so it's it's just like, oh, my dear, or, um, but it's in reference to a girl. And then PAC is, stands for Political Action Committee. So the Political Action Committee um, for my PAC is um, a way to one, say, we're not only going to bring people to the polls for you, um, but we will also give you financial support. And um, in the past, when we, we endorsed a lot more candidates, our, um, our endorsement amount was uh, $250. But the $250 is, you know, it's not huge, and it's much more symbolic about establishing the relationship that there's some um, financial um, support that we provide. But the value that we've seen most from our um, candidates is bringing people to the polls to support them in their campaigns. And the fact that we have both the linguistic and uh, community relationships allows us to introduce them to people in their districts um, and allows us to interpret the campaign in Hmong to their constituents. And I think the best example um, we have is um, there in 2018, uh, in one of the districts, um, one of the candidates that we endorsed had a Hmong opponent who was a Republican. 
And so we went and door knocked for her and, um, and we were able to then connect with them uh, because we could speak Hmong. And so then, and then we could tell her like what Hmong, her Hmong constituents were thinking and saying. And so, um, and so that was really powerful. The fact that we're bilingual and bicultural and could bring that resource to the campaign, which I'm not sure that without my PAC, she would have had that resource and the number of people to volunteer um, who could speak Hmong for her. Um, and not speak Hmong for her, but speak Hmong in the campaign uh, to reflect the diversity of the campaign. And so um, as my PAC grows, um, our goal is to increase our endor endorsement amount and provide more uh, continuous support throughout um, the non-election years because that's part of the building the deeper, more authentic relationship. Here's Terry Tao, one of the co-founders who also works as a program director with Nexus Community Partners. After Terry, we'll hear from Tao Mei Shang again. Yeah, it was a group of, of Hmong women who had been, um, a lot of them who have been active in uh, political and policy circles who had actually um, had kind of the same, come together with the same vision of saying we needed to impact policy and politics in, in different ways. And a couple of the founding members actually had thought of forming a PAC. So I just, um, one of the other co-founding members had just brought, you know, convened a whole group of us and said, you know, you, you're someone who's also uh, been working in this field and would you be interested in coming to this meeting? And from that meeting, there was consensus that we wanted to form, form a PAC, um, uh, of, you know, from, from these Hmong women who were involved in these issues. Tao Mei echoes Terry's comments on the formation of the PAC and talks about the role of the PAC as a disruptor that was trying to build a connection between voting and the capacity of people to influence policy. You know, we were created really to disrupt and, um, and make the connection clear between our voting power and influencing policy because we do this huge push for get out the vote and we bring tons of Hmong Americans to the polls. But after we do that, that seems to be it. So every two years, we bring tons of people to the polls or every other year, depending on the kind of pack that you are. But my pack is a state pack, so it's every two years. And then um, and then there's no relationship with the, the person we just elected and how they actually then make really important policy decisions, both in terms of the tax dollars that we contribute to our government, as well as the, uh, the programs that are um, created and implemented. And so it's one making that um, making that first point of contact of the voting and supporting the candidate all the way to, do they fulfill their um, campaign uh, commitments to the community um, prior to being elected? And the second piece is um, the disrupting of um, powers of structure is to say, not only are we going to support you prior to election, but we want to hold you accountable all throughout your election and that we want to do that in partnership with you and not um, just as an adversary out in the community. And so while we're doing that, that building that relationship is really important because many of our elected officials based on their applications as well as conversations is they rely on the typical um, either Hmong American leaders that they see in the community. So they usually go to the typical uh, Hmong organizations like Hmong American Partnership, 
Um, at one point, it was also uh, the, um, now I can't remember the name, it, the Lao, uh, it's not Lao Veterans Organization. Lao Family. Lao Family. Lao Family, family um, that no longer exists. And, and now we're seeing more and more that elected officials rely on the other Hmong elected officials um, that do not live in their district, but live in a different district for relationships into the Hmong community. And what we're saying to elected officials is actually you can build um, authentic relationships with uh, constituents in your community and you don't have to rely on um, just other Hmong elected officials from other um, districts. And that's really important because um, there's the assumption made that as long as we're all Hmong American, then we all have the same goals and values and perspective when that's not necessarily the case. Um, and that if you look at our list of endorsed candidates from 2016 to uh, now, 2020, the, the range in which um, of the candidates that we've endorsed has really changed and evolved based on our learning and our interactions and experiences with these candidates and elected officials. And so, um, and so my PAC has created uh, and is trying to create this uh, movement where you can really connect directly with the Hmong community within your district and not just rely on, um, you know, our typical community leaders or figureheads. The other component is um, this is also just a real platform to elevate the leadership and expertise that Hmong women bring to the table in the political arena, uh, both in terms of substantive policy solutions as well as authentic community relationships. So um, while we are um, trying to change things externally, we're also doing a lot of internal um, uh, deconstructing of our internalized oppression, right? That we are uh, working together to really say, look, as Hmong women, we can lead together because there's the perception that women can't work together, right? Uh, so that's one. Two, the fact that we are leaders in our own right and we don't have to wait for others to affirm that um, that lived reality that we have been leading in spaces for a long time, but there isn't or hasn't been others who are um, lifting us up. So we don't need to wait for other people to lift us up, that we can lift each other up. And um, that in itself is affirmation of both our expertise and our leadership skills. Um, and so that's where the values piece of um, working at at the intersectionality of gender equity, racial justice, and immigration rights is so critical because then we allow all of our um, identities to be uh, to to be the core foundation of the things that we care about, and so we're not isolating policy issues, but we're actually um, connecting, intersecting, and weaving in all of our lived experiences. Um, and so I think there's multiple facets to my path that make our organization really dynamic, but complicated and hard to explain in like a couple of sentences. Because um, doing social movement work or movement building work, um, it takes time and, but with a powerful um, handful of women who are willing to really grapple with these issues, um, we can actually make huge strides and. From MIPOC leaders, the election is one tool to influence people's lives and build community power. This is a flip from many normal political action committees, which are often solely focused on just influencing election results. Here's Sita Lishong, 
Um, Sita is one of the newer leaders with MAPAC and a program manager at Nexus Community Partners. For me, I think, you know, for me, MAPAC is a way to change the way I think about my relationship with um, my community, Hmong women, Hmong, the Hmong community at large, other um, Black, Indigenous, and, and communities of color. I think there are a lot of stereotypes and stories that are told about Hmong women, immigrants, minorities, and so often those stories are told without depth or context. So my pack for me is a way to change that by adding our lived experience to the political conversation, both in our lives with people we know and um, kind of at that at that state policy level. So the conversations are happening all the time and the election is a way to kind of focus that, but it more is about why we are or aren't political just through the way that we live, I think. As we said at the beginning, MIPAC recently endorsed 19 candidates for the Minnesota State Legislature. Here's Terry Tao again. Um, yeah, we endorsed um, yeah, 19 candidates because we're a statewide pack. We typically have endorsed it. We can only endorse at the state level. So we, and this year, as we know, both the House and Senate seats are up and we endorse 19 candidates in communities where there are a lot of Hmong, uh, there's a Hmong population who are going to be supportive of the MIPAC um, agenda, our, our agenda, our vision, and our values um, for the next legislative session. So it was 19 seats we approved, um, um, 19 candidates, 12 of whom are on the House side, seven on the Senate side. And uh, it's similar to what we've done every two years when we, uh, since our uh, inception. Uh, most notably in 2018, we actually did do a, a gubernatorial endorsement. Terry, maybe you can share a little bit more about our process of inviting folks to apply and then, um, because the endorsements are based on those who actually apply, but we, we invite people to apply, we don't allow it. Um, everyone's apply. Yeah, and again, as I said, they're from communities where there are Hmong folks who live there. And so I was part of the endorsement committee, in which we sent in invitations to all candidates running in 37 um, targeted areas. And so, and of those, we got um, 22 um, areas that applied. And so we're um, some of them, some of whom it was just, you know, the, you know, one or two, or sometimes all the candidates applied to if that uh, from that area. So that's how we uh, selected our candidates. And then um, we asked some questions about, you know, like their relationships with the home community, you know, how they would continue to support um, and champion racial and gender equity, um, you know, how they would they commit to our values and their legislative priorities. CETA also echoes the endorsement process uh, that it's about building and displaying the power of the Hmong community and specifically Hmong women. I would just add you know, that the relationship with elected officials and with, you know, institutionalizing our collective power, I think is really important. But I think on a, for me, in the last couple of months, what's been really, what's made a difference to me um, in being uh, more active politically through my PAC is the, the, the depth of conversation that we have as a group really gives me a different insight um, because so so often in my community and nonprofit work, I'm thinking about these big groups of people, and to get to this um, 
this personal level of, of politics in discussion in sisterhood with, with this group has been really great, uh, a really great experience. And then the other piece of it is fundraising, right? So we, we, <laughs> we don't have a chunk of money to endorse folks. We're out there talking with, with I'm out there talking with, um, you know, friends and family, and not that we haven't had political conversations before, but not necessarily so pointed, and to the point where we're, I'm saying, and also give money, you know, and, and I don't bring in huge donors, but um, then pulling it, you know, pulling out friends and family for $25, $50 gifts, and, and what I'm asking is not necessarily for the contribution, which is great, but also for them to think about what their political statements are beyond voting because we are a growing and powerful community and i think we we still can be stuck in that refugee mindset of like just trying to take care of our own even though we've 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 um gotten to the point of being able to take care of our broader community and then continuing to broaden what that community looks like so we can influence institutions, stand in solidarity with other um, communities and other groups. Um, so it's, for me, been pushing those conversations from people who are already informed, educated, and folks who are maybe informed but not politically active, just kind of continue to push our own level of civic engagement. I think that's been um, the biggest change for me in being involved in MyPAC over the last couple months. All of the leaders of MyPAC that we interviewed for this segment talked about the impact of structural oppression on Hmong women and the many different systems of oppression that these women have to operate in. The power building of MyPAC is one thing and it's crucial to the work, but because of that reality of operating within multiple forms of structural oppression, there's a lot more work that has to happen internally within the organization to make the work flow. Here's Talme again. I do want to elevate um, the issue around gender because I think the fact that, um, and, and we're very intentional about saying gender equity, racial justice, and immigration rights because the gender piece is really critical. Hmong American women continue to um, face both within the mainstream culture as well as within our own cultural community, the gender component of really challenging uh, cultural norms in both the American context with and the Hmong context. And that's a really um, important uh, element to raise. And when we talk about fundraising, um, the fundraising piece is to um, really challenge the narrative that Hmong women, um, one, can raise money um, probably not at the same pace as Hmong men. They have a different social network that is much more expansive and rooted in familial relationships. Whereas for Hmong women, we are uh, creating from scratch um, more uh, relationships and relationships outside of our familial um, relationships. And so all the women on this call and all the women in, in my pack and the core my pack team um, that's why bringing our different networks to the conversation is really critical because it's not your typical family network. It's a combination of family, friends, and professional relationships. And, um, and the reason why I say that is because 
Hmong men candidates use the Klan system to be able to fundraise quickly and without question. So they'll say, everyone in our clan has to give this amount of money, and then everyone does it out of loyalty and uh, reciprocal responsibility. Whereas for Hmong women, we are building from scratch the legitimacy for why we should be giving to a Hmong women's organization. And so in that way, that's why uh, earlier when I said, um, when we work at the intersectionality of these different structures of power, um, that we're fighting multiple structures of oppression, which um, you mentioned earlier. Um, and, and we see, depending on who we're interacting with, what structural what structure of power is at play. Um, and that's really important to note because it's not just, you know, the gender issues that we face at work or at home. It's both then the gender issues. Um, not only is it the gender issues that we, we face, but it's also the racial perception of how Asian women should behave, how Asian women should be engaging in politics. And even though um, something that uh, I've seen at the Capitol, even though Hmong Americans um, are very politically active and show up at the polls, that has not translated to our influence on policy. Um, it kind of stops there and then the policy piece gets dropped off. And so understanding that young Americans can be engaged in the cycle of um, uh, electoral politics and public policy making, the full cycle of it, is really um, important. And when we talk about public safety reform and criminal justice reform, um, the conversation around immigration and um, Asian Americans get dropped off. And so, um, and so I wanted to lift up the gender equity component that, um, you know, with the Me Too movement, it's, you can see that the uh, gender oppression in American society is deep. It's really deep and it's really hidden and um, until recently, there was a lot of shame around it and people didn't bring it up, right? And then um, until the civil unrest around George Floyd, the racial oppression is deep. And is, you know, we have deep roots in American uh, culture. And then there's the, the silent element of how Asian Americans are impacted. Um, and when um, at the border, when immigrant children were, uh, stripped away from their parents, like infants being stripped away from their parents. And now we're still struggling to connect those infants to their parents. Uh, that elevated the conversation um, around immigration and um, and the nuanced conversations between the different types of immigrants in um, American culture. So, um, so there are multiple structures of oppression that my PAC is trying to fight simultaneously and not breaking them up into different silos. Um, that makes our work super exciting and unique, but also extremely challenging at the same time. I wanna thank these leaders with my pack for speaking with me. It's very powerful to learn more deeply about the work happening in the Hmong community and with Hmong women to build sustainable power and the leadership of these women in moving this work forward. Thank you to Terry, Sita, and Talmay for sitting down with me. Just a reminder that you're listening to WFNU, LP, St. Paul, Frogtown, Community Radio, 94.1 FM. Up next, we have an interview with Ileana Mejia about the recently passed bonding bill. Here's that interview now.
Ileana is a community member and a community organizer who works in and around the Minnesota State Capitol. Um, so today we're talking about bonding because when we last spoke in August, wow. we did not think there was going to be a bonding bill this year. I mean, all signs pointed to there not being a bonding bill this year. Yeah. So what changed? That's such a great question. Um, you know, I'm not sure what changed um, specifically, like what the tipping point was, um, but I think collectively the legislative um, leadership knew that there needed to be a bonding bill because of the benefits. It, you know, it would create jobs, um, you know, put money into our economy, um, and also you know, they're, they serve the constituents, you know, or, you know, and so the constituents wanted a bonding bill because of what I had just, you know, previously named. Um, so I think that they, it, they knew it was important. And so I thought, I think that um, because there was an opportunity to be in session again, when Governor Walls um, had extended the executive order, um, you know, for him staying in uh, the peacetime emergency, um, like the power that he has during the peacetime emergency, there is going to be an opportunity to have a session. So I think that they were like, okay, we need to pass a bonding bill, um, you know, because of jobs, the economy, um, you know, putting people back into work, things like that. So, you know, I think, I think there was an opportunity and they took it. And mm -hmm. I also... I also want to say that because it's an election season, I think that was also another reason. I think that um, one of the ways that it was able to be talked about again and negotiated uh, between the Senate and the House was that it's election season. And so this is going to look really great for the people that are running in districts that have projects, proposed projects from the bonding bill in their districts. So I think it was also a little bit of like self-serving, um, you know, oh, hey, like we passed the bonding bill. I got this project in our district. So that's really great. Re-elect me because I'm fighting for you. Mm -hmm. so. so we we've talked about this before, but a bonding bill is about infrastructure development. It's about jobs. So Construction on 35W would be considered, uh, bond, you know, bonding material. Yeah. Uh, what is kind of general general overview, big picture? What's being included in this bonding bill? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, what's being included? There. So it's 1.9 billion dollars. About 1.9 billion dollars. Um, I think the specific number is 1.8 billion. Um. So that includes 1.36 billion in general obligation bonding, and then 31 million in supplemental general fund budget spending. Um, and so this is one of the highest bonding bills passed in Minnesota history. Um, I'm not sure if it, it is the highest or if it's one of the highest, but it's definitely up there. I know that when we started session in January or February. I know that the governor really wanted, I think, like a $3 billion um, bonding bill. And I think the Senate was like, uh, we can do like $1.6 billion. And so here we are now at $1.9 So I think that's great. Um, so 
Yeah, what it includes. Um, it includes um, lots of money to the Department of Transportation, like um, almost $330 million to the Department of Transportation. And so I believe that's, you know, that's building, you know, highways and um, and state roads, you know what I mean, making sure that they're probably in really great shape. I'm not really sure of the specifics there. Um, you know, there's $75 million going to, like, the University of Minnesota. There's $25 million going to military affairs. And then there's so much in between um, in those uh, projects, or I'm sorry, in those uh, institutions that I just named. Um, so there's, there's a lot of money uh, going to different um, uh, agencies, state agencies, and then different institutions um, around Minnesota. The one, hold on, sorry, the one um, piece that I'm super excited about is that for the first time ever, historically, there has been a uh, piece about equity in the bonding bill, um, which is really fantastic because I'm not sure if other states in the nation have also um, specified a part of um, the bonding bill to going towards equity. And so this might be the first in the nation. I'm not sure if it is, but you know, I'm <laughs> I'm hopeful that it is. And so what this means is that um there is an equity part in the bonding bill. And this is part of Governor Walls and Lieutenant Governor Flanagan's proposal before session started. Um and so it passed. It's super exciting. So thirty million dollars um, is going towards BIPOC communities, so Black, Indigenous, people of color communities, who have historically been like left out of the bonding bill process. A lot of times, and I know we had previously talked about this um, in the last few times we've talked, but um, um, getting access or you know funds from bonding bills is very like a secret handshake, and so a lot of communities of color and people that are running like nonprofits doing work to serve BIPOC folks um, aren't really familiar with the process because it's so closed um, and so secretive. And so this is really fantastic. Um, so I'm not sure uh, where the 30 million is going, but I think like um, I wouldn't want to speak on someone receiving money whenever I'm not really sure where it is, but Actually, one moment. I have it pulled up. Well, I know that the Baldwin Square project in Minneapolis, in North Minneapolis, is receiving. Yeah. 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 And then it looks like uh, the American Indian Center is receiving some money. Um, Native American Community Clinics, Juxtaposition Arts in North Minneapolis, um, Hmong American Farmers Association. These are just a few of really great organizations that will be receiving this money. Um, so that's $30 million, so that's really great because um, usually, you know, in, in in the state that we are financially, I feel like that wasn't going to be passed because I could see a lot of people saying that that wasn't needed in the bonding bill because it's kind of like extra. In their eyes, for me, I think this is necessary. I think a lot more money should have uh, gone into this. But, you know, $30 million is great. Um, hoping it continues in the future bonding bills. And then the last thing I want to point out is that they also, as part of this equity and bonding piece, they also um, have new language, a, a new policy 
that requires diversity hiring goals and equal pay for state bonded or state bond funded projects. Um, so this is uh, really um, the representation piece that I think is important. And so when you think of like who's actually doing the construction work, it's mostly white males. Um, but this equity piece that was passed in this bonding bill is saying that, you know, you need to be able to say that you, you know, tried, I think it's, I don't know the specific words, but I think it's like you, you attempted to, or you did um, hire women and uh, people of color. So it's really great because it's, um, you know, it's increasing the representation of, um, yeah, you know, women and people of color in the construction industry, which again, you know, mostly unionized, mostly really great pay. So it's, it's, it's getting at that equity piece in, uh, from a construction standpoint. And I think that's really fantastic too. So mm -hmm. um, I'm hoping this continues. <laughs> um, I hope that uh, legislators aren't just going to be like, okay, this is a one-time thing, but you know, I guess that's the work that we're going to be doing in 2021 um, mm -hmm. is, is hoping to get this in statute so that we can um, always make sure that it's a, um, always make sure that it's happening. Mm -hmm. Thank you to Ileana for joining us on air. Next Tuesday, November 3rd is election day. Just a reminder that you can find your voting place and answer other voting questions at the Secretary of State's website. This year, unlike most years, we should not expect results on election night. Please turn to the Associated Press or other trusted media sources or the Secretary of State's website for results. The Minnesota Secretary of State's website is sos.state.mn.us. Again, we shouldn't expect results on election night because of the number of early votes. Those ballots, by and large, do not get counted until election night, though every state is different. You can visit the Secretary of State's website for, uh, for precinct returns, for voting information, and to answer your general questions. You can reach the ACLU's Election Protection Hotline on election day or in the days before to report issues of voter suppression or voter intimidation. The election protection hotline in English um, and for English speaking communities is 1-866-OUR-VOTE. Again, that's 1-866-OUR-VOTE. There's also a Spanish speaking hotline that is 1-888 and then the letters V-E-Y-V-O-T-A. Again, that's 1-888. V-E-Y-V-O-T-A. Finally, The Uptake, where I work as Executive Director, is our newest sponsor of the Radical News Radio Hour. The Uptake is a woman of color-led, community-centered, nonprofit news organization founded in 2007. In our earliest years, The Uptake was a citizen journalism organization known for our live stream coverage of the Minnesota Legislature electoral campaigns and recounts and covering those things, and community mobilization efforts, again, reporting on those things. Today, we are a community journalism organization that centers a really deep analysis and contextualization of social issues and racial justice work. Um, we are collaboration-centered, we are partnership-centered, and we believe in using a multitude of tools, including this radio show, but also a podcast to be launched in a couple of weeks alongside our partners at Voices for Racial Justice, 
a print magazine around the quilt policy, art, and healing, our website, live stream, social media, to report on issues that are pertinent to historically marginalized communities. On Tuesday night, The Uptake will be co-hosting election night coverage. We'll begin at 8 p.m. with polls close, and we'll stay on air for the evening, sharing stories from community, stories from earlier in the day at the polls, um, and any results that may come in, though we're not expecting too many to come in that are that are final on election night. Just a reminder um, that you're listening to WFNU, LP, St. Paul, Frogtown, Community Radio, 94.1 FM. I thank you all for listening, for joining us for this, uh, our 19th episode. I always love sharing this with uh, space with all of you. And I look forward to speaking with you next Tuesday and then for our regular episode next Thursday.